we are now going to turn to 1 Corinthians in our Way of Love series. And we're going to continue to speak about marriage, love, sex, and enjoying all of these things. All right? And so I want to speak this morning about life within marriage. And um, I really trust it's going to encourage you and that you're going to be refreshed in your own relationships, whatever they are. Um, so 1 Corinthians 7 verse 1, we're going to read the first seven verses together. Uh, like I said, I'm going to make some comments. Helen's going to come and make some comments after me as well. So I have Paul writing, and he says, Now, for the matters you wrote about, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. Paul, what on earth do you mean? Well, we're going to look at that. But since sexual immorality is occurring, each man should have relations with his own wife and each woman with her own husband. The husband should fulfill his marital duty to his wife and likewise his wife to her husband. The wife does not have authority over her body, but yields it to her husband in the same way. The husband does not have authority over his own body, but he yields it to his wife. Do not deprive each other except perhaps by mutual consent and for time that you might devote yourself to prayer. Then come together again so that Satan will not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. I wish that all of you were as I am, but each of you has your own gift from God. One has this gift and another has that. Paul being particularly direct and helpful as he always is. is very clear. Paul, I love reaching Paul, uh, uh, reading Paul. You have no doubt in terms of what he thinks, all right? And that's a very helpful thing. So we've reached uh, part 20 in the series. And here in this portion this morning, the tone of Paul's language in the, in the letter starts to change. Up to this point, remember the first seven chapters, he's been addressing these problems in the church. He's been challenging. He's been commanding. He's saying, God commands you to do these things. And remember, the, the things that he's been warning them about were a lack of unity, where they were preferring people in the church and saying, I like that leader. I don't like that one. I like that preacher. I don't like that one. Paul says, don't do that. All of these gifts are yours in Christ. Enjoy them all. Don't divide yourself around personality. He also talked about um, immorality in the church that we looked about and said, don't give in to immorality, be self-controlled, honor God with your body. He also talked about not taking people to court over trivial things in the church. He says, no, you believers, there's unity in the church. Don't do that. Don't let pagan people judge you. You, you come as brothers and settle this thing out of court uh, over trivial um, things. And then... Last week, I had a look at the whole thing of Paul encouraging us all to honor God with our bodies uh, as the basis for how we want to live going forward. We've been saved from our past, whatever our past was, and some of, for some of us that included promiscuity and sexual immorality, and Paul says, no, that's, you've been forgiven for that, that's wonderful, but now I want you to live in a way that honors God going forward. And this is how you live, you remember that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit, you are indwelt by the living Christ, your body is no longer yours, it belongs to Jesus, and because it belongs to Jesus and you're going to enjoy resurrection one day, keep your eye on the prize. And somehow our physical bodies now are connected with our resurrection body in the future, 
future. And Paul says, live well now because there's continuity in your life between your physical body now and your glorified body. And he doesn't point them to all the things that could go wrong through sexual immorality like getting STDs or falling pregnant. He doesn't point them to that. He points them to the vision that God has for their future. He says, no, no, you've got an eternity, a resurrected, glorious eternity in mind that God has for you. Keep that in mind in how you live and live in a way that honors God with your body. Yep. And we looked at that last week. And now the tone of his letter begins to change and he becomes more fatherly and more friendly. And he says this in verse 1, now to the matters that you wrote to me about. So the Corinthians had written to Paul and asked him some questions and now the first question that he begins to answer is around the area of marriage, and he, he, he kind of answers them in, not in a kind of challenging way, but in a way that really takes the shape of good Christian advice, good fatherly advice that Paul offers them based on his knowledge of the Scripture, based on his own reflection, based upon his personal pastoral experience of helping people, and then he offers them some advice about marriage, and later about being unmarried. And these seven verses here that we read this morning are his first kind of little part of counsel starting talking about marriage. Now remember last week I said to you that there were these phrases that were being thrown about in the Corinthian church which were common at that time that they were using. And uh, the first phrase that they used to justify their sexual immorality was, I am free to do anything. Remember? Everything is permissible. That was a common phrase in the Corinthian culture. And Paul says, yep, you are, it is true. You are free in Christ, but your freedom must be limited by love for other people. And so he says, I am free to do all things in Christ, yet not everything is beneficial. Yet I will not be mastered by anything. And this is the key that Paul brings in, and it's helpful for us as we try and navigate our life. I'm so glad I'm not a young person, and I don't mean that in a funny way, but it's so difficult for you guys right now, hey? To grow up in a culture that is just bombarding you from every side with every kind of sexual image that's available on your phone, it's available on the, on the web, it's on posters, it's in music videos, it's everywhere, and it's like... <laughs> And you've got to find your way through. Man, it's hard. We need to pray for our, the, the guys coming after us, all us old people. Yeah? It's not easy. It's not easy. And so Paul says, yeah, you are free, and Jesus has bought your freedom, and you're completely free in Christ. But the Christian gospel says you limit your freedom for the sake of love for other people and how it's going to impact their lives. You limit your freedom. You don't do certain things because it's loving not to do those things. And so I had a look at two examples of recent views on freedom that have directly impacted our culture, which have not been helpful. The first was Friedrich Nietzsche, who talked about the Ubermensch, you know, uh, throw off God, throw off his reign, throw off his rule. All we need is people to truly be human. And uh, then he encouraged, his, his whole thing was to encourage people to be truly human, and that involved what he called being an ubermensch, an over-person. And unfortunately, people like Hitler and others adopted that philosophy and applied it in a racial way, and it led to untold suffering in the world, and brutalization and colonization all over the world. 
because people thinking their culture was superior to another culture. And Europeans in the 18th and 19th century thought that their culture was superior to every other culture on the face of the planet. So if you read about the Belgian Congo, you read about the atrocities that happened in the late 18th century, millions of people were slaughtered by Belgian people. Millions. And so this is what we have to guard against. There, and I said to you, Galatians 3, there's no slave, no free, no black, no white, no Jew, no Gentile, no slave, no free, but all are one in Christ. When Paul said that, everything changed. The world changed forever, and the Christian gospel has been changing the world ever since then. Secondly, I gave you an example of someone who'd lived out the thing of sexual freedom, the Marquis de Sade, who was around in the French Revolution, who said the most important thing was, they were both atheists, by the way, the Marquis de Sade and Friedrich Nietzsche, and so de Sade said, we've got to throw off God's reign in, uh, in our lives, His rule. We are free moral agents. We must do whatever we feel. We must live however we want to. And so he lived that out sexually, and um, his name is now synonymous with depravity of every kind. He lived that out. He abused people, men and women. He, he, he gave himself to sadism, where we get the, the word sadism from was his name, because he enjoyed inflicting pain on people, because it was his right to do that. He lived any way he wanted. And I contrasted that to what Paul says. He says, yes, you are free, absolutely free, but your freedom is limited by love for other people, what's good for everyone, not just what is good for you. And so... That was the basis of what I said last week, and I say all that because uh, Paul is really con he's still speaking about freedom when he talks about marriage now. He's speaking about freedom in marriage, and he's speaking about what's helpful in marriage. You see, because there's, there's two ways that people react, and we always do these two extremes. So if there's immorality, one way that people react is to become legalistic, isn't it? It's the obvious reaction. Just make the rules, batten down the hatches, tell everyone what they can and cannot do, and the problem solved. Yep, that's how the church has been for centuries. Legalism. Do this, do that, don't do that, wear this, don't wear that, don't drink, don't smoke, and you'll be fine. It's not the gospel. Now, Paul says, no, we are free in Christ. We've been bought with a great price. We are His. And because we are free and we have been bought by a great price, we live differently because out of love for honoring Jesus. Not because there's a whole bunch of rules that we have to follow. No, it's because we love Jesus that we live like this. And so here, in terms of marriage, Paul is saying, he's still speaking about freedom. And he's saying, because there were a bunch of people in the, in the church that were, were now saying, because there's immorality in the church, what we need to do is we just need to stop having sex. That's how we solve the problem. Even the married people in the church, no sex for you. That's what we do. We become aesthetics, ascetics, where we just practice fasting and prayer and celibacy, and that makes us more spiritual. And Paul says, no, that's not how you solve the problem. Morality is not solved by becoming legalistic and battening down the hatches. That doesn't help. That's not what God has called you to do, and he speaks directly and says how men and women are to behave within marriage. And he's, so, so here again, this phrase, it is good for a man not to touch a woman, that was another common phrase of Paul's day that the Corinthians would have been familiar with, and it was a euphemism for having sex. 
it's good not to, 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 for man to touch. In other words, a man not to have sex with a woman. And on one level, it seems like Paul agrees with that because he says, I wish that all of you could be like me. And we know that Paul was celibate, right? We don't know why he was celibate. Perhaps he was a widower. Perhaps he lost his wife. Perhaps his wife left him when he um, became a Christian. If I thought that might have happened, he might have been married as a Jewish man, became a Christian, his wife might have left him. Or perhaps he chose never to get married. We don't know why Paul was never married. But here, for Paul, being celibate meant living a perfectly good and fulfilled life. And he didn't consider his life inferior, deficient, or in any way less human because he wasn't having sex. And why do I say that? Because our, our post-Christian culture, post-modern culture says, if you are not having sex, if you are celibate, you are somehow less human. It is your human right to have sex with someone. That's what our culture, that's our culture. It's your right. And it's a great privilege and it's wonderful. And I, I love my wife and we enjoy having sex. It's wonderful. But it's not like, it's, I don't see it as a right it's a privilege that we enjoy because we are married. And so Paul, he doesn't see celibacy like that. He, he sees it in a positive way because it's been positive for his life and his ministry. And he's not saying that everyone needs to be, that, be like that. But what he is saying is that he rarely objects to what people in the church are saying and trying to implement into the church and saying, actually, just be celibate and you're somehow more spiritual than other people because you are celibate. That's really what is driving it, saying no. That's got nothing to do with spirituality. And so here, he's really saying, I want you to understand about this, because in a city like Corinth, where there are temptations from every side, and a city like London, where there are temptations from every side, if you are married and you're not enjoying sex, you're setting yourself up for trouble. Yeah? Because you're going to be tempted to look outside of your marriage for the intimacy that you crave. So don't be stupid. If you are married, enjoy sex with your partner, with your wife, your husband. And so he's saying it's an, the intimacy of a shared life without the intimacy of sex stirs up emotions which, which tempt you to have those met elsewhere. And then he makes it quite clear in verse 2. Now please listen to his language. Verse 2. Since sexual immorality is occurring, each man should have sexual relations with his own wife and each woman with her own husband. Yes, okay, in the marriage, it's good. And then he says, husbands, did you ever think about your sexual relationship like this? Husbands should fulfill their marital duties to their wives, and likewise the wife to a husband. The wife does not have authority of her own body, but yields it to her husband in the same way. The husband does not have authority over his own body, but yields it to his wife. Do not deprive yourself. Guys, he's saying to you, make sure your wife is okay. Make sure she's sexually fulfilled. It's not all about you. It's about her, actually, and it's your duty as the husband to make sure your wife is doing okay. Come on. How many husbands have asked, my darling, are you doing okay? Is there anything you need? not all about you. It's about someone else that God's called you to share your life with, and it's about them. And do you notice, ladies, I just want to 
I'm not picking on the ladies, but everyone. Do you notice the amazing equality in Paul's language? I'm so tired of hearing people saying that Paul was misogynistic. Don't know Paul. Definitely don't read the Bible if they think Paul was like that. Because what does Paul do? He makes the point of saying it starts with the husband making sure his wife is okay. That's where he starts. And then he says, oh, by the way, wives, in the same way that your husband is making sure you're okay, please you make sure that he's okay, that there's a mutual affection, a mutual laying down of your body for each other, and then the marriage begins to work. Yes? It's not all about me. It's not all about my needs. It's about my wife and her needs and what she needs. And as I give myself away, hopefully it's a mutual thing that happens, and that's how the relationship powers ahead. And we're going to talk about unmarried people next week. So I'm not trying to discriminate here in any way. And I want to just say to you, this, this was a radical idea. My darling, I've gone too fast. I'm nearly finished. This was a radical idea in Paul's day. Remember what I said to you last week? In Roman households, males ruled. Males ruled absolutely. They had sexual rights to anyone in their household. You go read Roman history. Man, woman, child. They had sexual rights to have whatever they wanted in their household. And Paul says, no, Christianity doesn't work like that. It is radically different. And it was revolutionary what he said. And I want to put it to you, it's still a challenge in our culture today. And it's an ongoing challenge for husbands and wives to work out their relationship given the pressure of the rhythm of life and work and daily pressures. Making sure that we're okay sexually. It's even harder when both partners are under severe pressure at work or are sick or ill or there's a long-term illness or the kids are sick. It's one of the great privileges of marriage to work these things out together. And Helen's going to help us to do that. And Paul finishes and just says, there might be some time when you choose to abstain from sex because you want to spend time in prayer or seeking what God might have in store for you. For, for me, the equivalent of, the, of that is like going on a spiritual retreat. You might go away on some kind of spiritual retreat for a couple of days. That's cool. That's fine. But then come back together and make sure you don't um, deprive each other. Yes? So he's not endorsing asceticism at all. He's not saying there's something holy and wonderful about being celibate in the sense of you know, becoming a monk. He's not advocating that. He's saying, if you have to be separate, that's fine. Choose to do it, that's fine. But come back together so you do not deprive each other and you do not fall into temptation. And so Paul makes it quite clear that this is his advice. It's not a command. It's fatherly advice to these people, and he wants them to do well, every single one of them. And we're looking at unmarried people next week. And then he finishes and he says, God calls and equips everyone for the lifestyle that he calls them to, whether they are married or single. And I want to hope this morning that you will find courage for your life, whether you are married or not, whether you're single, whether you're courting, that you'd live in a way that honors God in your sexual life, whether you're married or not. Amen. There ends my portion. Helen, come and bring your portion, please. No pressure. It's not good if we're talking about marriage that it only comes from a male perspective. Isn't that right? So here we go. 
Just checking your notes. Well done, Ant. Um, yeah, I, I think it's, a, a, it's such a privilege to be able to, to speak on marriage, and uh, it's something that we really want to celebrate in this church. And um, we, as Ant was saying, we are aware that not everyone here is married, um, or perhaps you have been, um, but we hope that this will also be something that builds us as a community and uh, and it's good to be able to support married couples. And so maybe this might help you also to be aware of what everyone is needing and going through. So some of the thoughts um, that I wanted to share, I've taken from a book called Intended for Pleasure by Ed and Gay Wheat. Um, and then a lot of the other thoughts are things that over years of married life and just doing ministry times around marriage, um, these are just some thoughts that Ant and I have kind of put together. So, well, first of all, uh, what I want to say to start off with is to say that it's a wonderful thing to be reminded that sex was God's idea right in the first place. Um, this is something that he designed and he made, and uh, therefore he knows how best for it, sh for it to work well. And we can really trust uh, we can trust God as the maker and the designer of sex to help us know how to express and enjoy this wonderful gift that he's given us. Um, and I also just want to start off by saying that sex is wonderful. Do you agree? Yeah, that wasn't a very convincing cheer. It is wonderful. Uh, I have this um, saying um, that I made in the early days of our marriage, I said, intimacy is the oil that keeps the cogs of life running smoothly. Because you see, we, we all need a place um, where we can connect and be truly vulnerable and feel safe at the same time. All of us need somewhere in our lives that we can experience that, even if we are single. And there's different kinds of intimacy that we can have in different kinds of relationships. But as we're talking about sexual intimacy this morning, I want to say in God's design for sexual intimacy, uh, I like to use the letters V-I-P. And uh, maybe not in the same order as those letters. But you can't have vulnerability with, or you can't have intimacy without vulnerability. And you can't have vulnerability without partnership, covenantal partnership. It's really hard to be completely vulnerable with someone when you know this person is just going to walk out and leave you. But that think the importance of that partnership and that covenant with each other allows you to feel safe to be vulnerable and then to experience intimacy. So I want to say that genuine sexual intimacy in marriage has the remarkable power to heal, to renew, to refresh, to restore, and to sustain the marriage relationship. I'm sure you've all heard that sex is the poor man's holiday. Huh? No, maybe not. In Genesis 2, verse 24, it says... A man, yeah, next time we don't have any money. Um, in Genesis 2 verse 24, 
Um, it says, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Isn't that so beautiful? In, in Genesis, it says that. So God is saying that in marriage, he no longer sees two separate, independent individuals, but he says two united individuals who are now mysteriously bonded in a covenantal relationship of oneness, which is both spiritual and physical through that sexual intimacy. Because of this God-designed one flesh relationship, real intimacy between husband and wife always has sexual dimensions. Whether they are having sex or just talking or snuggling or falling asleep, working in the garden or side by side praying, it is all lovemaking. And I want to say the practice of tenderness, loving gestures, expression, uh, maybe expressing frequent affectionate touching, sharing your thoughts and feelings with each other, showing mutual support and trust, and valuing and caring for each other's bodies so that when your husband complains that he has an ingrown toenail, you really are interested <laughs> and concerned. That's love, you don't, I know, this is an example. <laughs> But it's, it's this way of, of showing that we are in, invested and care for each other. It's about shared laughter, contented silence, and all of those things are beautiful expressions of genuine sexual intimacy. Now, Ant also has a saying that he made up that he used to say a lot. I haven't said it for a while, but you're wondering what it is? It is, yes, foreplay begins in the kitchen, which uh, I don't mean literally, uh, but, uh, well, unless you are so inclined, but in the gestures of kindness, in preparing a meal or washing the dishes or sitting at the kitchen table and talking about your day. Uh, you cannot suddenly foster sexual intimacy in the bedroom if it's not cultivated in the small gestures of kindness and thoughtfulness and love throughout the day. So you don't get home from work, throw your bag down and say, come on, let's go. <laughs> There's a genuine cultivating and sharing and caring that creates the space for sexual intimacy. And I want to say that sexual intimacy really carries a couple safely through all the different seasons of married life. It carries you through those first few years of marriage as a couple settles into a new way of life together, and that can have its real ups and downs. Or that seven-year itch. Anyone been there? It's under, I don't know why there is a seven-year Sometimes in marriages you get a little bit scratchy and niggly and think, just keep going. Uh, in the years when you have career and young children and uh, you maybe just have demands on your time and energy. What about those soul-searching years of parenting teens? Or the empty nest years of finding purpose and companionship without the focus of children in the home. And that's where we've been recently. 
Or what about the years of finding significance and value when you are aging and sometimes the challenges of ill health and loss of independence? You see, sexual intimacy is so important for nurturing and comforting and deepening the bond of love and tenderness between a husband and wife. But I do want to say, on the other hand, it can also be the source of great emotional pain and disappointment when there is a loss of deep intimacy and sexual fulfillment. Sometimes we think that because people are having sex that they are not alone, but sometimes if there's not real sexual intimacy, the sexual act can be very lonely. Sometimes there can be some red flags in our marriages that start to say, this area of our lives, of our married lives, really needs some attention. Perhaps a little red flag for you is that you've started to feel bored in the marriage. Or perhaps a red flag is that you're no longer interested in sex. Or you just are always faintly frustrated and irritated or you no longer appreciate and cherish your spouse. Or perhaps a little red flag that you think the grass is greener somewhere else. I just want to talk about three things that really can break down sexual intimacy. And then I want to talk about some things that are really positive. So these are three things that I think are unhelpful if we are wanting to build deeply authentic and real um, emotion, emotional and sexual intimacy in our marriages. So the first thing I'd like to say is when you stop talking to each other about things that really matter. Because you see, intimacy grows where we are able to talk about both the positive and the negative feelings that we have. And I want to just talk to you about some things that uh, we found helpful in our marriage, creating little habits that make space to talk without being interrupted so that you can validate that other person and feel that they can feel that they are heard. Now, you, some of you are sitting here thinking, well, what the, what's that got to do with sex? Remember what I said. You can't have sexual intimacy in an authentic way if you don't first have emotional intimacy. So what are some of these habits? Well, I think putting away your phone, looking at each other in the eye, really listening and being present with each other. It's very, very simple, you know, very simple. What about going for a walk with each other? Uh, that's something we try and do every day after work. Well, maybe when it gets a bit cold, it'll be a bit tricky. We'll have to go at lunchtime. But find some time in the day. There's something interesting about when you're walking. You, you can talk and you can leave some things behind that distract you. That's something that works for us. It might not be for everyone. If you've got little ones... Um, how about getting them into a really good bedtime routine so that you can have the evening to yourselves? I think I'm a strong believer in getting your kids into bed. Good night, goodbye, <laughs> and then you can have time together. Uh, what about eating meals 
around the table instead of front of the TV so you can have that face-to-face -face space where you can talk to each other. Um, what about uh, choosing the right time to talk? So maybe one of your, either you or your husband's just, just come in and you've had a busy day at work and now you pounce on about that thing that he did in the bedroom and you think, I just wanted to have a word about that. No, that's not the moment. Just to pick up the moment. Oh, that was a bad example. But anyway, I, I don't say that, do I? <laughs> but um, yeah, just finding the right moment to talk is really important. I love that when we talk to each other, sometimes if we're feeling stressed or anxious about something, we can use the words, you always do that. You always say that. And that's so unhelpful. And so if we can learn to say things like, when you say that, it makes me feel, and we can use the word like, I feel, is a much more positive and allows a person not to feel defensive. And I think the most important thing, whether we're talking about something positive or negative, and if we have to, to speak about something, is to really pray for God to prepare each other's hearts to be soft and open to hear. So when we stop talking, and when we stop being emotionally intimate, it's really hard to be intimate in our, our sexual lives. The second thing is, I want to say sulking is like pouring water on a burning flame. You see, bottled up anger and resentment, no matter how veiled or repressed, will always kill intimacy. And an argument, unpleasant as it may seem, is better than chilly silence because that's about pushing through your disappointment or your anger and it's still about reaching out to the other person. Whereas sulking is about withdrawing and punishing the other person by withholding engagement, affection, or sex. So just sulking is just horrible. Um, I want to say, uh, some, some people have said, I don't know which preacher once said, uh, if you sulk, it's like inviting all the demons of hell to come and live in your home. It doesn't help with sexual intimacy. It doesn't help with any kind of intimacy. So the only way to deal with this negative pattern for resolving conflict is to cut it out ruthlessly at the roots and to stop and talk to each other and say, admit to each other that it's a problem in your relationship, that either one or both of you are sulking, uh, and then you make a decision, we're going to stop it, and then you agree that you're going to make it a family value that no sulking is allowed. Because if you sulk, your kids are going to sulk. And they're going to be in a marriage with sulking. So just, just deal with it at the roots. And as soon as the sulking head comes up again, and there's the silent treatment, and <laughs> what's wrong? Nothing. <laughs> you don't look like nothing's wrong. Nothing. Nothing. Just deal with it. And help each other by gently challenging that behavior and not accepting it anymore. Please. It will do wonders in many ways, not just in the bedroom. And then the third thing that really can hinder sexual intimacy 
is being insensitive or unsympathetic. And I really believe that intimacy grows when we are sensitive to our partner's needs. Um, and it doesn't really help intimacy if you just demand sex when the urge arises and don't see that your spouse may be tired or stressed from work or a day of dealing with crying children. And the verses that Ant read are really wonderful and powerful. And uh, I think I just want to really agree with what Ant says. Paul is not in any way uh, chauvinistic, but I want to say that some of these verses have been taken and used in a chauvinistic way to uh, reinforce attitudes that you can have sex on demand. Never mind that the kids are bouncing off the wall in the room next door, the chicken's burning in the oven, and you feel as sexy as a wet sock. It says you have to have sex. No, I don't think that that's what Paul had in mind when he said that. But on the other hand, uh, the partner who interrupts their spouse's passionate lovemaking to take the chicken out the freezer or to check on the sleeping child may be guilty of some kind of sexual sabotage by always finding an excuse to derail things. So it bo works both ways. And we really need to be able to understand our partner's needs and try to minister to them as they have need rather than looking to our own needs. And that really builds trust and mutual respect. And that, for me, is the most powerful foundation for fulfilling sexual intimacy. So I want to just end off on a more positive note. How do we cultivate deeper sexual intimacy? Um, I think if we want to build sexual intimacy in our marriages, we will need to begin to relate to each other sexually as lovers, not as disgruntled mums and dads or bored partners who occasionally have sex out of duty. We've got to begin to see each other as your beloved, as your lover. So here are some characteristics of marriage partners who are intimate lovers. Now, I know this sounds like an idealized list, and none of us is perfect all of the time, or we, this is something to aim at, not because we all get this right. But this is, these are beautiful things. So intimate lovers speak kindly and tenderly to one another outside the bedroom, when sex isn't the motivator for saying, I love you. And so, to inside the bedroom, they communicate in an affirming way of speaking words of appreciation and affection. Intimate lovers build trust outside the bedroom, and they build trust in each other, and that spills over into trust inside the bedroom. Intimate lovers leave other demands and distractions outside and they focus wholly on each other. Don't have the phone pinging, ping, ping. They both actively prioritize time alone. It's not just one person in the relationship saying, oh, we do need to have some time together. No, they both make that a value. And they put it above the priorities of work, family, and children. If you want a, a really, really good marriage, 
husband and wife need to be first, not the children. If you put your children first, then you got the tail wagging the dog. And we need to prioritize our lives around building a strong foundation in our marriages and children find stability and security when that is in a good place. I, I think um, intimate lovers keep their bedroom as a haven for love making. So the, be- the bedroom is not an office or playroom. They dive onto the bed in romance and there's a squeaky toy. <coughs> we try and keep, let's try and keep our bedrooms the most beautiful romantic space. Um, intimate lovers say sorry and they forgive quickly. They keep the romance alive by doing both planned and spontaneous things that make each, other, each person feel cherished. Don't, don't stop being romantic. I remember uh, I went away on a trip once and I came back and Ant had put these beautiful flowers in the lounge and was like, oh, those are amazing. And then there were petals all the way up the stairs and candles. I think he had missed me very, very much. It was, it was very, very special. You can do it again <laughs> if you want. <laughs> um, and then... Intimate lovers don't withhold themselves sexually from each other. Like I said, don't sulk with each other and use sex as a weapon to hurt the other person. When we do our next marriage uh, seminar, because that will be a more appropriate audience, we can talk more specifically. But don't withhold yourselves from each other. And enjoy making love even when you don't initiate it. You can also... Come and play the game. Intimate lovers find courage to deal with their issues or past hurts for the sake of deeper intimacy and a healed relationship. If you've had pain or abuse or anything in your life that makes this a very sensitive thing, you know that God is able to heal, God is able to restore. And God is able to bring this into a place of wholeness in your life. And intimate lovers are committed to journeying towards a more passionate, engaged, and mutually satisfying sexually intimate marriage, whatever season they are in. Sex should get better and better and better. You, you think sex is great when you go on honeymoon, guys. But it's going to be even better when you... 30, 40 years down the line because you know each other and you feel safe and you love each other even more. So just to action, I want to say if you are struggling in this area in your marriage, please, please, please don't suffer in silence. Rather speak to someone. Maybe there's someone you trust. Tell someone that you're struggling. And you'll find out that you're not alone and maybe just talking with someone might bring a bit of perspective that you need. Sex is meant to be fun and don't let anything stop you from finding that place in your marriage. 
we can sometimes feel shame and embarrassment in this area, and we just carry on struggling when it can be very simply resolved. Um, in Deuteronomy, I forgot to copy this, there's a beautiful passage which speaks about newlywed couples um, taking time out from everything else just to focus on being together in their marriage. And um, there's a beautiful phrase in the King James Version, and which is euphemistic for making love, but it says, husbands, cheer up your wives. I hope we're going to see lots of cheered up wives. <laughs> and you can ask each other, are you cheering up your wife? We know what we mean, nudge, nudge, wink, wink, <laughs> say no more. But I think uh, we, want, we want this to be a happy, happy place. And uh, we want families to be strong and couples to be enjoying the gift of sexual intimacy that God has for them. So, yes, and I think we should talk about, well, we are going to talk about singleness next week. I think we should use the word singleness rather than unmarried because that's like a kind of a, a negative version of singleness. So if you're single, we want to celebrate with you that season as well and, and know that God has got wonderful gifts in that area for you as well. But let's, I think to end, I know we've gone on a bit later, longer today, sorry about that, but I think it would be lovely to pray for married couples this morning. And um, can I ask maybe if we all stand, oh wait, 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 wait. I think maybe we just ask the married couples to stand, and if you are married but your partner's not here, then also to stand as well because we want to pray for everyone and I wonder if everyone around could just reach out and we're going to lay hands on them and pray God's blessing and goodness and prospering over them and, and also we've got some engaged couples Sade got engaged Woo! so let's pray let's pray for them for Sade and Frank and we are very excited because Matt and Rosie get married on Saturday. So we are looking forward to celebrating with them. So you guys stand too. We'll pray for you. Okay, so stand if you're married or engaged and we want to pray blessing. Let's, uh, let's reach out to all these wonderful people and speak blessing. You can just stand as well if you're sitting. Just let's all stand and reach out. It makes sense. Do you want to pray? And Father God, we just want to bless you for every single person here. Thank you for the journey that each of us are on, whether we are single, whether we are married, whether we are courting or engaged. Thank you that you are with us in every season of life. And thank you, Lord, that sexual intimacy is a beautiful picture of the intimacy that you have planned for us in heaven one day. It's a, it's a smattering. It's a, a small foretaste of the beautiful oneness that we will have with you one day. And I pray that you would help us in our lives to be thoughtful, to be caring, to be those that look out for each other. And, uh, Father, that you would bless every 
the husband, every wife, that they would find that deep intimacy, that cherishing of each other, that overcoming in whatever season they may be in, that they would find that intimacy again where they can reaffirm their love and deepen their affection for one another. And I pray that this would flow into families in the wonderful blessing and into this church community, um, that we would just have that grace on us as a family. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.